0: That's the other interesting thing about teacher-student dynamics is that they flip-flop back and forth, you know, uh, in the front of the classroom. Are you always the teacher? I find that I am more often the learner. Hi, I'm Teresa and welcome to the podcast that explores the stories the body holds and the stories the body
1: tells I'm Sherry, and our aim is to connect the individual to the collective through our shared stories of living in a body. And each week, Sherry and I pick a different topic and have a casual conversation. This is Anecdotal Anatomy. Hello, teacher. Hello,
0: teacher. How are you today?
1: I am fully seated in the seat of the
0: student. (laughs) Which is often synonymous with the seat of the teacher. Sometimes I learned the best things from the students in my class and they were, they've always been my teachers. This is true. This is true. That, that's, a, that's a fundamental truth. Yeah. It's kind of hard to define in a very clear and concise way, you know, the avatar of teacher because it comes in so many different forms. You know, um, even Siva, my dog. You know, Amy from way back in season one, go back and listen. She talked about how much the dogs teach us about how to live our life. You know, Siba will come up and kind of insist that I slow down in my walk sometimes. She'll just stop and stand still and start staring into the woods like, hey, there's something here for us to observe. So you never know where your teacher is going to show up. You
1: don't. I, I don't know if you ever read the book, The Once in Future King. I've read it twice. The interesting thing about it is the first time I fucking loved it and I'm going to tell you what I my takeaway from that time. Second time I read it out loud to my firstborn, it was part of our sort of like graduating from the kids books into like that next thing. Neither one of us could understand a lick of it. It was just like what the hell am I reading? I it was it was unfathomable to me that I'd had two such disparate experiences with the same book. It, And I should know more now in my life, having lived many more years since I'd read it the first time. But my takeaway the first time, this is a King Arthur story. And Merlin, Arthur, when he's a boy is referred to as the ward and W-A-R-T, I think. And Merlin comes in and transforms him into all these different creatures, like an ant, to learn how to be part of the army of ants, like the skills that you would learn from that particular species, turned into a squirrel where these squirrels mate for life and they have this, I forget all the scenarios, but it was every time he was transformed and transformation is something we talk a lot about as a result of lessons and teaching and moving forward. It was designed so that he could cultivate the skills he would need to be a benevolent king, you know, with skill and power and still be able to to be his optimal, you know, royalty, kingship. And I thought that was so interesting, just apropos of the lessons we learn from animals as humans as observers. But what happens when you sort of inhabit inside that world? You know, what else can we learn? And I, it's not really a thing we'll know; it's an unknowable. But thank you for the imagery from Once in Future King, T.S. Something. Uh, what the hell is his name? I'll I'll look for it. <laughs> I can't remember. But yeah, Once in Future, T.S. T.H. White, T.H. White. That is. Yeah. Not T.S. Eliot. Did you say that the other day? T.S. Eliot. You meant something else? Yes. And I, mean, yes. T. And S. I said T.S. T.I.A.S. T. I, T. I, A. S. S., right. Little. OK. Yes. Speaking of teachers, you know, I've never met him, but I've read his book, loved his book on the subtle body anatomy. And I consider him one of my teachers, even though we've never actually met.
0: I do as well, because as you know, I kind of love science and he really, the way he presented all of the different information about our body Mm -hmm. um, just expanded my view in so many different ways of how I can think about the body, right? Just these, giving these beautiful titles to different parts of The body and the way that he talked about, like, and I've used it, not exactly, but somehow when he talked about the sacred sacrum, I mean, it's actually named, so it doesn't make, I mean, it's not a far leap, but he made that very far leap for me, just in the different metaphors that he uses in his book, and also this different way of learning by learning through metaphor rather than necessarily memorizing, you know muscle names, insertion origins, actions, right? It wasn't a memorization type of learning. It was metaphorical that left a lot of room for adding in imagination, pulling out facts, but then looking from a whole lot of different lenses at the same bit of information and finding out how it changes, how what I'm learning changes depending upon the lens that I look at it through. And And I find it
1: fascinating that you started by saying, because I love science, but what drew you was his metaphor and his poetry. And that's the reason I even stepped through that portal because of his narrative, the way that he expresses the the teachings. And so this goes to the seat of the teacher. You know, I like I've said this before, when I was at NYU, I had taken, this is way back in the day, but I had taken a Hinduism, Buddhism, and Taoism class, and it should have been The most astonishing beautiful experience but the teacher was you know it's about dates and you know did it and like explaining the deities but not in any kind of contextual way not in a way that would have drawn me in and thought wow i want to learn more about this you know whoever's the one giving the information you know there's a there's a receiver for that and so there may be someone out there who was like i need the dry dates i need to be able to see the linear thing how it goes and Bravo for them. That is not what I learned. So I spent a lot of time doodling in class. But interestingly enough, full circle happened and when I discovered yoga, and these themes and these tenets began to resurface. I found teachers who were able to to draw me in and to teach in a way that felt that felt relevant. I shared this
0: story before, so I'm going to make it brief. When you talked about like memorizing dates, and I started with memorizing insertion origin and action, and then different dates, dates, linear timelines, you know, of events for different things that have happened in history. And it was my dad that kind of broke that spell of memorizing as a way of learning. And I've used that over and over again as a teacher. It's kind of, you know, you study, you memorize, you pass the test, you forget it all because there's no application to all of the things that we memorized. And it was fifth grade history. So I said, I liked science, fifth grade history, all the dates about World War II, all the names, all the places, all the dates. And when I studied for the test, I memorized them. I was a good, I'm a good memorizer. Well, my brain was younger then. Sometimes I find I'm not a good memorizer now, but I was very good at memorization back in the day. And when I went to my dad to talk about what I needed to know to pass my test, he never asked me one date, one person, one event. Basically, he looked at the paper and said, eh, you know, you know all this stuff. You've just memorized it. But the challenge was, If you're going to study world war ii why did it start like come up with some thoughts come up with some opinions and that is my first memory of somebody challenging me to think like to really think about my information to critically look at it and not be spoon-fed somebody else's opinion but to read And he would also have us read multiple authors if we really needed to learn something. He's like, you can't only learn something through the lens of one author. You need to have different opinions so that you can, you know, kind of amalgamate all of them. And in the end, distill out what is it that you believe.
1: So some things are facts and
0: others are just a way of thinking.
1: Yeah. It's the stories that we tell. I did was not a reader. You know, I tried my dad. He also he tried to get me excited about reading and you know he would what was the Ahab one with the the Moby Dick Call me Ishmael you know and so he would he would try by reading to me and you know I guess I was hardwired since a baby when someone reads to you you fall asleep and I would just fall asleep every time and it wasn't until I made the choice for myself to be interested in my own learning that I was able to find the teachers and the teachings that would resonate that I could actually you know, do exactly that. Be critical of it in a way that was curious and less judgmental. Um, but I had a big rebellious streak about anything and everything academic back in the day. Anywho, our lessons are teachers, you know. But how much influence can an outside source have to, to promote that inner learning, that, learn, that desire to learn? When I was really little, I went to a, a day school, a private school, up at, through third grade. And it was very, very small. We were the first class of this particular school. There were maybe 11 or 12 kids in the whole class. And I didn't really find my people. I I had friends. We we didn't have a choice who our friend groups were going to be. So anyway, at the end of third grade, I said to my mom, I want to go to public school. All the years, I thought she just honored my desire to be in public school. Meanwhile, she was also a little dissatisfied with the situation that was going on there. But the learning there was interesting. It was very immersive, and we never learned the the division. The I, I don't know if you call it short division because the other one's long division. The one with the little sign with the dots above and below it. That one I never learned that. We went right to long division at the private school, so I was ahead of where the class was, and I actually excelled in math. Believe it or not, I was very good at the long division, but when I got to the public school, not only did they not give me a teaching on it, a lesson on it, to teach me how to go back and do it the other way, they did not foster progression from where I was. So they didn't meet me where I was. They didn't give me the tools to succeed from where they expected me to be. And as a result, I tuned out and had, this is my origin story of saying, no math please, numbers, no way. They put me on a number system where every day I would go home with a number to say, how well I was doing from one to four. This is fourth grade. A lot of judgment in that. A lot of, you know, she's not, I've never lived up to potential according to teachers, but I take that as a badge of honor. So I come home with this number every day about how I was doing, but they were not doing the work to help me succeed. So that's an origin story there. And even now, like I'm surprised in the moments where I excel and I'm like, oh, I can do this simple math, but I still use my fingers and I'm still, you know, sort of the story I tell myself is pretty solid around math. So I have to, you know, chisel away at that a bit. Um, But it mattered, the teachers. Now, I don't want to vilify my fourth grade teacher because she was lovely. She was great. I learned we would come in every day with newspaper articles, either international, national, local, or what she would call an IBI, which I put in the margins of my books today. That's an interesting bit of information, something that may not fall into the realm of big news, but something that catches your eye or your heart that you want to talk about. And so there was a lot of positive going on. But when I look back at the origin story for my my feelings about math, that's pretty strong. And I put that on the the administrators and the teachers. Mm -hmm.
0: You talked about, you know, your dad reading to you and the first thing being that you would fall asleep. And that's, I mean, I read to my kids. I'm sure many people did that. You know, as soon as your kids are born, you start reading all of those great books. And it was a really special time for us to... Have that nighttime ritual of reading books, and I did it oh, until my kids, like you said, they had the transition to the the big books, you know, the chapter books. When we got to chapter books, and then they would read. But so I'm lucky that I don't fall asleep when I'm being read to because I love listening to audiobooks, and I do it while I drive. So falling asleep is not an option.
1: <laughs> <laughs> danger, but... danger! Audiobook in play. <laughs>
0: I am like extremely visual, as far as I love to color. I love taking photographs, so visual I would assume that you know I would be much more visual in the way that I interpreted information, which would be reading. But I have never in all the years that I was in school did I ever do well in reading comprehension, and even now, if i I will comprehend, but i read things multiple times and then it all starts to click together in all the boxes but a one reading when i'm trying to learn something is not enough for me but what i've learned is if i listen to somebody read the same information to me i capture it and embody it much much different much differently and much more quickly than if I have to read it myself. And I've always found that interesting. I think it's why I just navigated to audiobooks. And that was really because I was driving a lot and I needed something to make these long journeys not so boring. But it led me back to really recognizing some of the patterns that I had developed. Like I've said this to you before, I could show up in class and listen to the teacher and if they based their tests on what they lectured, which in grammar school and high school, most of my teachers did, I would do really well on tests because I would pay attention and I absorb the information. But if they said, go home and read this chapter, I would probably have to read it four or five times if I really wanted to be able to absorb the contextual information that was in there rather than just the words.
1: I can't imagine caring enough to read it five times. Like that to me is just way too much effort. And I get it though, like, because I'm the same way, but I think that's why I didn't do the work. You know, they say, and I don't have the statistic on my hands at the tip of my hands, the tip of my tongue, but there is some kind of data out there that suggests that you, you absorb a certain amount of what you hear, a certain amount of what you read, a certain amount of what you see, but... when teaching something, that is the most absorbable experience. And I have found that too, that my yoga, not just asana, but yoga philosophy, all of the things, the offshoots, my meditation, all of that came into clearer focus when I started teaching. Now that didn't take me out of the seat of the student at all. I've never had the confidence to kind of Really stand firm in the seat of the teacher as the one in the front of the class. I kind of see all, even regardless of how the setup is, I see all classrooms as a circle. And so we're all just arcs in the circle of learning. And that, yeah, I think I heard Sean Korn years ago, I went to do a workshop of hers at Yogaforia when it was in New Hope. Thank you, Melanie, for doing that. And she said something like, It's not that I know more than you, it's that I have the capacity to communicate it in a way that people can best receive it. And that stuck with me. I don't think she said it in exactly those words, but it resonated because I love expression. I love communicating. I love reading a room and being able to, you know, to, to be able to speak to all the individuals in this big collective of a classroom through humor, through music, through anecdotes, through, you know, it's, uh, pop culture, whatever it is. And so this, and like you said, the students have things to say. Like I remember one time I had this student who I said something like, take a cleansing breath in through the nose and out through the mouth. And she stood there and I always sort of set up an atmosphere in my classes where people could, if they had a question in real time, to be able to express themselves. And she said, I don't want (laughs) to, something like that. And I said, why don't you want to? And she said, I feel like it would be wasting my prana. Prana is that life force energy that rides our breath. And so we have all these locks in yoga that help keep the prana contained within the body. And when she said it, I hadn't even considered it like that, you know? And so I thought, you know what? You're right. Indiscriminate exhales will do that. I mean, there is a mindfulness about the, the cleansing breath, but the way I would future teach that was if you're go if you need to take that cleansing breath, and I know that sometimes our bodies are asking for it, then just make sure you are mindful about it and maybe dedicate your breath to someone who could use it. Dedicate your energy to someone who could use it. And that way it's not wasted. It's directed. it's But that teaching came to me from a student who just said, I don't want to
0: and I'm not gonna do it. And I'm not gonna, right? Yes. <laughs> there must be something about learning in there because when you were talking and and I responded with, "And I'm not gonna do it." I even put my hands on my hips, so like you know, like, there's the teaching that learned ingrained. Like there's an attitude that goes with it too, because I had to put yeah. my hands on my <laughs> hips to uh to even say the words for anybody who's not watching. Those are my body mechanics that went along with my voice which is also a way of being a teacher. You know, body mechanics and what we do can really express so much more of what we're teaching. So I remember when I was teaching in massage school, this thing happened. I I taught hands-on classes and I also taught musculoskeletal anatomy and kinesiology, but this was a hands-on technique class. And in the tex- techniques class, there wasn't a lot of reading and full work that had to be done because it was a pal- palpable course where you were giving each other massages and what you learned was much more experiential than say teaching musculoskeletal anatomy. But there was a day where I really wanted all of my students to be prepared with a certain reading. And so I gave them that reading as a homework assignment. And the next time we got together and we gathered, I started talking about the homework assignment and asking questions, and nobody was participating. And I was like, "What is going on with these people?" I mean, they always participate. It's you know, you're going to get a massage that night. It's a fun class. But nobody's participating. So it finally occurs to me, as the teacher, that nobody did the reading. It's right? nobody read the homework. And now I was really upset because I hardly ever asked. And I'm not, I was a massage therapist who became a teacher. So I'm not really a trained teacher, if you can call it that. So I pause and I'm thinking, what am I supposed to do when not one person in the class has done the reading? Nobody did what I asked them to do. So I was like, all right. So since nobody did the reading, I asked the person in the front row, in the front seat, To read the first chapter, the first paragraph of the reading, and they did. They read it out loud, and I'm just trying to think. So I needed a time filler. That was my my strategy. If I get them to do something, then I can have a chance to think and like kind of formulate how I want to address this. And they finished with that paragraph, and I went to the next person and asked them to read a paragraph. And I went through the four people in the front row, which gave me time to think. And what I realized was how I was reacting was a punishment, sort of like, oh, you didn't do the whole work, so I'm going to waste your massage. I wasn't thinking I'm going to waste your massage time, but I realized that my choices were more like treating people like children and punishing them for not doing something I asked rather than finding a way to make it a a much more positive teaching moment I went into a punishing moment, like you're in trouble for not doing this. And then all of a sudden, by the fourth person, I realized, like, what are you doing? You're not here to punish. You're here to inspire and teach and share passion and information. So I stopped and I was like, and then I was like, all right, so this is really important. You know, I don't ask you to do a lot of full work. And I just had a conversation from my heart. Yeah. And somebody raised their hand and I was like, OK, I said, you want to contribute? And she said, thank you for not reading all of that. And she goes, somehow you came across as my mom and I just felt like I had disappointed you so much that whenever you ask us to read again, we're certainly going to do it. And I realized that my thought process was right. I was treating them in a way that was a little unfair. And and I transformed it and we had a really great conversation around it in a different way. So instead, they broke into groups. Each one prepared a certain lesson. This is all going back to your teach it. So I broke them into groups instead and said, okay, you take this, you take this, you take this, and then we'll come together and we'll teach each other yeah. what we learned, which wound up being a really great and inspiring class because again, they were the teachers they went, they looked at the information. So the learn it, do it, teach it philosophy, I, I will venture to say nobody's
1: forgotten lesson. And I would venture to say that even trained teachers, there's a learning curve to the actual being in the classroom. You know, you were the one who told me to record myself way back when, just to see if what I was doing was in line with what I was saying. That was a huge teacher for me, seeing myself recorded. And that's, you know, teachers go through that too to sort of see how many times do I say like? So how many times do I stammer? So watching ourselves back is a big teacher for teachers. And, you know, who, who gets trained to, I mean, I guess teacher trainings do something. I know that for the yoga teacher training at the Prancing Peacock, that was the first training or something that I was doing to move myself forward that I actually read every book. I read every chapter, every word, because I was so, I was at a point in my life where I knew what I wanted. I wanted to know this. And in order to know this, I needed to open that first page. Now, I'd also become a reader in the interim between college and, and uh, you know, fast forward, what, 15 years from then, 20 years from then, not really 20, what is it? I graduated from college in 1990. So do the math. I'm not doing math. We've already covered that. But what was that? That there were books I got to choose, but then there were books in the curriculum and every fricking word. And yes, there was a progression over the learning and the knowing and yeah, and that fear of having to teach it, getting up there, not having to, getting to teach it to our peers and our classmates and all of that. And, and little by little, you know, it's 2011 is when I taught my first class, but I've been practicing since about 1999. So there's been a whole progression of teachers, formal and informal, you know, going out into the world as a teacher, (laughs) you know, just being alive as a teacher, if you're curious enough to pay attention to what's around us. You know, when I think sometimes my fourth grade, my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Marshall, (laughs) he had what I remember from his class, not very much. I remember he had a poster on the door that said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. (laughs) <laughs> you know, my, now my dad was a psychiatrist and my mom was a social worker. And I, you know, was very familiar with the word paranoid, but curious why it was in a fifth grade classroom, you know, and I've never forgotten that. My sixth grade teacher, Mr. Hunter, I look back, I had about 10 years in the 90s when I was obsessed with the King Arthur legend. I read everything, all the fiction, you know, the Mary Stewart books. I read *Miss of Avalon. I did all whole, the whole Cromwell books. And the history ones, trying to search for Arthur, I, I cared a little less about. Um, but I thought, where did this come from? I, I'm like 99.99% Ashkenazi Jew. Like, how do I have so much desire to learn about, you know, the southwestern England and Wales and all of that history? And then I remembered Mr. Hunter. Mr. Hunter, my sixth grade teacher at Rydell Elementary School, he he created a classroom that was based on on the feudal system. So that we could learn it in context. How fucking brilliant was that? I learned more in that classroom than I had in all of the years accumulated to date. And I was I was a surf in this little model of teaching. So, and for some reason, Mr. Hunter seemed to take a lot of joy in surf sherry, go clap the eraser, surf sherry, go do this, surf sherry, go do that. And it became kind of a shtick, and I became surf sherry. Um, but we had the lords and we had the ladies and we had all of the whole sort of thing. So I look back on that as maybe a seed planted for curiosity about this time in history that sort of morphed into the mythologies and, and took me away. And so I want to thank Mr. Hunter for his his courage to be able to break the the academic norms and create an experience for us that I hope and I just I imagine everyone else also looked back fondly.
0: Looking back fondly on teachers, when we decided to talk about teaching or the teacher for today, I started thinking like, what teachers do I remember? And I'm thinking that if I remember your name and I remember something about it, you made an influence on me because there's lots of teachers whose names I no longer know. I don't remember who you are. Sorry. And not that I didn't learn in your class, but when the teacher's name is still there, I'm thinking I must have really learned something so valuable, even if I don't remember what the valuable lesson is or whether it was like just an attitude for the whole time that they were my teacher. But I started writing down some of the teachers whom I remembered and I still know their name and Mrs. Kurtz for fifth grade and why did I remember Mrs. Kurtz? Well, first of all, Mrs. Kurtz wore stockings with seams up the back. She had a military background. I remember that. I don't know what she was, but her persona was military-ish, but she was like kind and compassionate. So not like she was like a, a general barking orders. She was just stern and strict, but fair. And Mrs. Kurtz, taught us about getting our periods. It wasn't the class that we taught, but it was about, you know, in fifth grade, she was the person in our, if I remember correctly, so sorry if I'm wrong in the story and somebody listening knows that remembers a different, but she had them separate the boys and the girls and talk about our changing bodies. So I was like, huh, I remember Mrs. Kurtz and what I remember most is that lesson and the stockings that I remember, because she was always fixing the seam in the back if it was oh my crooked. Gosh. <laughs> Mr. Phillips was my eighth grade science teacher. And I was like, huh? I remember again the name of a science teacher. Mm. And then I was like, who else is, you know, who else had a really big influence on me? And I remembered my massage school teachers and two of, the, two of them that came to mind Jen Smith and Beth Minker were both my anatomy teachers. I was like, I seem to have a science pattern going on in my background of who I remember and why.
1: Yeah, I don't remember any teachers from junior high and I don't remember any of my professors from college except for my acting teachers. I don't remember any of them, but I remember in high school and I wrote a substack about this and I'll put that in the show notes too, about two mentors who are unlikely mentors for someone with like me academically, who really had just kind of blown a lot of it off. And one was ninth grade, Mr. Woodley. Mr. Woodley, I had a big nose. I was awkward, so awkward. And I was getting a nose job. I said this last time. I got my nose on a little rhinoplasty at the end of ninth grade, right before the summer before 10th. And Mr. Woodley kind of knew this. He had watched how the dynamics, He he was one of those people who could really fucking read the room. He's no longer with us, sadly. He was a coach. He was just amazing. Pulled me aside one day and he takes out this big poster board that had all these cutouts of different noses on it, but he didn't show anyone else. He kind of took me into the corner as if we had this special secret. And we laughed and we laughed and he just wanted to wish me luck. But he also said to me, I'm recommending you for honors English. And I said, you're crazy. Why? Why would you do that? And he said, do not take it if you don't get Mr. G because you will fail. He said, but I think you will love Mr. G and he will love you. And I thought, what did he see? How did he know? What did I what did I present to him that would allow him that kind of intimate knowledge of how my mind worked? I don't remember contributing enough to have him assess me that way, but I was grateful I got Mr. G. And if you want to know the details, you'll read the Substack. but it's basically he taught existentialism to 10th graders but this was a really smart class. I had never taken an honors class in my life. And I, I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't always show up in full clarity of mind, and you can read about that too, but I also didn't do much of the reading. But one day we were having a discussion about something and one of the smart kids raises her hand and she said something and I responded. And, and in that moment, I think Mr. G saw me for who I was. And even though I was carrying a C average in his class, I have a memory of him giving me an A on a, on an index card that just said, I love this girl, and put an A on it. But then I saw my mom saved the actual progress report that he had sent. And it didn't say that, but it started out by saying, I love this girl. And it had very little to do with my academic contributions to the class. But he saw something that Mr. Woodley saw that sort of created... A dynamic of thought, like we were thinkers together, and we got to express ourselves, and I've never really been one to toe the, the line. So it was a really interesting time, and I still look back on it with a modicum of confusion that, that, even, that I even got to be there, because later, I for some reason, I continued in the honors, and I had a teacher who was not as interested in my, my thinking mechanisms, much more interested on in whether or not I'd read the book which I never did, but she came over to me and my best friend threw me under the fucking bus. We were doing a test on Madame Bovary. And I went, I watched the the video. There was a movie of it. (laughs) And my friend told on me and she saw that right before the test, she says, there's nothing on this test that was in the movie. Every question is from the book. And she's looking right at me. I'm like, oh, fuck you. Like, this just sucks. And one day she was passing out our folders, our writing, our creative writing folders. And I had been, I'm a hippie deadhead. And I had already kind of been to a few dead shows and was feeling my hippie nature. And I put peace signs and flowers on everything with little comedy and tragedy theater masks and all sorts of other doodles. And she comes over and she hands me my folder and she says, Miss Seda, no one draws peace signs and flowers anymore. And I looked up at her and I said, well, Mrs. Tobin, maybe they should. Tobin? Yep. Her name was Mrs. Tobin. Oh my God, oh my that's gosh. so funny. But anyway, that was a real interaction we had. And I said, well, maybe they should. And, and that was it. Said, what do you say to that? And she just kind of looked at me and walked away. I should never have been in her class. <laughs> she was not my teacher, fit. She was not, a, you know,
0: teachers and mentors. I'm such a, I such ai do not know even what it is. I've had a mentor, a couple mentors that I'm thinking of that came not necessarily from a likely place. She said, we're with thinkers together. I had a student, her name was Mimi. Brilliant. Oh my gosh. But Mimi was a thinker as well. And she and I would get together. We still see each other long after graduation. Uh, she was in my massage class. She's has had a huge and very expansive education behind her. She was just really brilliant, but a great thinker. And to this day, if the two of us get together, it is, did you hear about? And then we start ripping apart. Well, what if you looked at it from this way? It's it's having somebody that inspires me to really like, let's just not worry about whether this is right or wrong initially. Let's just play with information talk about it from different angles, review it in different ways. And she was really, really inspiring. And to this day, I can learn something and say, hey, Mimi, guess what? We would call it like, whenever there was a class that I wanted to take or I was thinking about taking, I would send it to her with a picture of a carrot and say, I'm waving this carrot in front of your head. (laughs) Look in front of your face. Look at this great teacher that I want to take this class. Are you interested? So she was a student of mine who was just as much a teacher of mine. And then after she graduated, we kind of went through learning different ways together. So that's the other interesting thing about teacher-student dynamics is that they flip-flop back and forth. You know, uh, in the front of the classroom, are you always the teacher? I find that I am more often the learner even though I'm the person who they say, oh, you're in the front of the room, so you're teaching. But there's something about the interaction of watching students while I was teaching. It's one of the things when I had to begin teaching on Zoom that I really don't like, is the energy of that connection that was palpable when you're standing in the same room Um just being able to see the expression on everybody's face while I'm talking and sharing information was a way of me knowing if what I was talking about was landing. Like, did everybody look like they're sitting on the edge of their seats going like, "What's she going to say next?" Which happened occasionally? or well, they're kind of like, "When is this going to be done?" <laughs> and just kind of leaning back, looking a little bit bored, or was there questioning, you know, expressions on their face? A lot of my teaching and how I shared information was directly influenced by the energy and the feedback that I interpreted that I was receiving from the students in my class. And I say interpreted because they didn't tell me that, but it was still something that I paid great attention to.
1: I think that makes you a very generous teacher because I don't think all teachers do that you know i think for me it was glimpses like i had moments that would sort of come to to remind myself of that but there are some teachers who are dictatorial who are there to disseminate information and then leave and do their thing so i think that those of us who recognize that there that we are also students up in front of the class wherever it is i think that it speaks to a certain generous nature and and a willingness to not always be right or a willingness to learn a willingness and I will say, I don't know that I always had that willingness. There was a time in the beginning where I became kind of a purist. Like if I learned something new, I would hold on to it as if that was the thing that I was now, you know, presenting. But that didn't mean that was always the case, you know, that there would be those moments in between, like, I don't want to, that sort of reminded me like, oh, yeah, yeah. But there is sort of this feeling of, there were certain things I could do in front of the room that I could not do if I was in the class as a student on the mat. You know, if I was modeling something, there were certain poses that were really hard for me to do as a student, but as a teacher, somehow I was able to get them done. And so there's an energy that is important to kind of, I think, make a little bit of a distinction that we are the, actually the teachers. We are the ones who are disseminating information, but if it's only a one-way flow, then we are no longer teachers. We are <laughs> dictators. And so like, just to kind of make that space for that. Yeah. You know,
0: It's always interesting to me to learn what I'm teaching. And that was a lesson that was taught to me by uh, Jen Smith, one of the teachers, when I was teaching at at Cortiva at the massage school. There was a student that was really struggling. There were many students that were really struggling at this particular time. And my job was to teach anatomy, which for struggling students, anatomy is really hard there's, you know, it's learning an entire new language. If you're t- teaching musculoskeletal anatomy, it's a language that you have to learn in order to really embody the information. Like muscles have a a way of how they were termed, like gluteus maximus. You know that it's bigger. And if they had to say maximus, you know that there's probably going to be a minimus. So it was just this understanding of a language and there was a significant amount of the students in this particular cohort that were struggling and I was talking with Jen who had been my anatomy teacher and has was definitely one of my mentors as I went and progressed through my massage career and she said you know Teresa sometimes we have to accept that what we're teaching isn't anatomy and I was like I don't follow and she said, a lot of the students in the, in this particular class that you're talking about, they are struggling. And many of them have never finished anything in their life. They, they just haven't done that, not because of any judgment. It's just maybe they didn't have the right encouragement or the right resources or whatever it is. And she said, it's really hard as a teacher who has a curriculum that you're following to recognize that sometimes what you're teaching isn't on that. On that sheet of paper. She goes, So maybe you're just teaching them to be able to complete and finish something they started. And if they can learn that, then a door opens for all of the other things that were really hard. So it was a time where I really had to step back and look and say, What actually am I teaching? Mm -hmm. And it had a lot more to do with what the students needed to learn from me than maybe what was so tightly connected to a curriculum
1: well and and sometimes you can't know what it is you're teaching the person Mm. because you don't know all of your students in the in the in that way necessarily so we have to stick to the curriculum in a in a way because that's what we're there to teach but and you know people will take the lessons that they need and that i think that's true in many different ways you talked about learning a different language I'm going to shift gears a little bit here and talk about the language I learned at the beginning of the pandemic, which was in gardening, which I've always wanted to do, but have never had a green thumb, have always told myself stories about how I interacted with plants and stuff like that. And but when the pandemic came, I had a mentor came. He helped build me this beautiful garden setup, taught me a lot in his way. And he was very, very good. And he had his own sort of way of doing things. And so that first year he was really hands-on and I was there to learn. Second year, he wasn't there as hands-on and there were a little more fails on my end, a little more learning, a little more having to kind of, But I still wasn't confident. I didn't have the confidence to break the ground on my own and to do the things that would make it flourish. Year three last summer, oh my God, pure neglect. He wasn't there, I wasn't there. The garden kind of went to shit. I tried to get a few things going and then I was just like, fuck it. And just neglected. This year is a totally different story. I, there was no expectation that he would be around, but I felt this confidence from a, an accumulated confidence of having shown up each time for it. I made these little maps of the garden. I put where the perennials were. I put where I could sort of, and I played. And this year, I added flowers. I've been, you know, breaking ground with my little tiller thing, getting soil, doing. I have this compost that I've been cultivating all year and using that too. Everything is really showing up. And there have been a ton of fails, but the difference in the feeling is that I am learning so much. I know what to put on my map now about location, certain things, how they grow, what things would work better together and where I've added different things. It's a completely different experience. I feel a certain amount of autonomy. Now, even though the experience with that mentor was limited and small and really contained within the beginning of it, it was essential. That relationship was essential to get the wheels moving, to get myself going, to learn this language and to decide not to do some of the things that he said and to work on my own and see where his wisdom was and where it meets up with my wisdom. And so I think because I've also been a teacher for many years, even when I didn't know I was being a teacher, this, all of those relationships, all of that, it was, it was alive in this experience too. All of my acting was alive in this. All of my yoga was alive in this. All of the experiences that have taught me how to deal with things that I didn't know about originally, things that were mysterious, things that, you know, I could move forward on, all of that came into my trowel, came into my gardening gloves, into my hat, into the experience of getting my hands into that dirt and just doing it. So and I think it really is about just fucking do it. Thank you, Nike. I don't know.
0: They deal, did really encapsulate it into one yeah. sentence that we can use for so many different uh, applications. You know, you were talking about your garden, and it reminded me of one of my favorite movies. And that, and I say one of my favorite because I could probably say that about hundreds of movies. So
1: yeah. I'm just
0: going to say one of them, and that's To Sir with Love. And if you haven't seen it, uh, Sydney Porte p- plays Mark Thackeray, engineer who can't get a job, so he decides to teach and he goes into a school where it's kind of mayhem in East London, but he didn't teach what what he was there to teach a certain amount of curriculum. But the lessons that are really highlighted in the movie was
1: like, there's this one scene and your garden remembered it where he said, I love that you said my garden remembered it Oh, as if the soil was holding the memory. That was beautiful. It was poetry right there. He taught he taught them that you
0: don't have to be rich to eat healthy. And so one of the lessons in the class was teaching people how to make a salad. And kind of brilliant, right? He also taught people to address each other with respect, starting with addressing themselves with respect, to, you know, to to start to believe in themselves, which is a lesson that isn't written down saying this is lesson number 6, but he made a huge influence in how each how they greeted each other. Everybody called each other sir or miss, right? So he really started to work a lot with these disadvantaged and unmotivated students to just kind of elevate them as a group in how they showed up in the world, which... I just, I could watch the movie again right at this very moment and still find new things to learn in it. But all of that, it's interesting that it came up just from your, not just from, but from your talking about your garden, that that's the movie that came up because I got a card years ago from one of my massage students, someone I really love. She was just such a great student. She's done so many amazing things. But I opened the card after graduation and it was, and it said, to sir with love. And I actually broke into tears because it just, in that one sentence, said, You taught me all the things I needed to know about massage, but then so much more. And it was all of the soft things. It just was representative of the softer learning that she felt she took from the program. And so that sounded like I was patting myself on the back a lot, but- You're
1: allowed to do that though. You're allowed to do that. You're allowed to know where you excel and to own it. You know, I think we need to model that too. We tell people all the time to shine, get out there and, and share your gifts with the world. And, you know, unless we recognize them as gifts, what are we giving to the world? You know, so there's a certain amount of confidence that comes from the knowing, from the experience, from the learning- This idea of like, where does learning come from? We talk a lot about self-study. That's Svadhyaya as part of the yoga tradition.
0: There is a celebration in Hindu and Buddhism. It was posted today by one of my yoga teachers from my yoga teacher training for yoga therapy. And I thought it was really interesting. The reason I sent it to you was because you and I started talking about this episode being about, you know, teaching and learning. And then I learned that yesterday with the full moon, there was this celebration and a heartfelt way to honor teachers. And I was like, there we are. We're just like aligned with
1: what's going on out there in the yoga world. So the energy of the world, man, it's, you know, it's flowing always.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So honoring the guru or honoring the teacher. And there are ways that you can do that. One is to express the gratitude and both you and I in this episode have referred back to teachers that had touch points that we remembered, which I think as we speak their name and we talk about their teachings, that is the way that they continued to be honored, whether they're here or not. The other special ways that I ran across for honoring your teacher is to practice the teachings in your daily life. And that's what yoga is all about, right? Is to study, self-study, practice, learn. But then Not to just learn for the idea that I can share it back with you, but to incorporate it as into the philosophy, how I live my life, and then share it with others. Somebody once said to me, you know, the role of the teacher is to learn and share. You learn it and you share it. Whether you're sharing with somebody who's this far beneath you, what you know, or way far, it doesn't matter. If you can share anything with something, anything with someone that they don't already know,
1: Gives you a way of really embracing your inner teacher. Doesn't Stacey say that you just have to be someone's fourth grader to someone's third grader? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, yeah.
0: Right. I just found it really interesting that I ran across that in my Facebook feed when you and I were like, let's talk about, you know, teachers and how they've influenced us in the seat of the teacher. So interesting how we tap in to...
1: The energy that's around us without even knowing it. See how woo I can be? Right. And we've done an episode on the seat of the teacher, but it unwound very differently than this one. And so we know that our teachers come from experiences. They come from people, animals, movies, classes. We've taken trainings, you know, all these different places that we learn our lessons. When we fall down, we learn a lesson. Our friendships are our teachers. I've heard it say that our most challenging relationships are our best teachers. But so all of these opportunities to grow and learn, what is the common denominator? And I would think just as we're talking about all of these different ways that we absorb our lessons and our teachings, I think it comes down to awareness. You know, doesn't everything come down to awareness? Our awareness of being aware, our consciousness, our being alive and in this world, because without the awareness, can the teachings land? Can we recognize our teachers and those opportunities unless we're, if we're not aware? So I'm I sure that there are more common denominators that if we, you know, kept the conversation rolling, we could, you know, unpack and, and talk about. I'd like to just comment on that before we sign off
0: where you said where the teachings land. And I really like that because as I was like kind of gathering as I was sitting down, it occurred to me that there's so many things that I learned that didn't resonate with me. And one example is when I was in my uh, yoga therapy training, when we did the module on using mudras, it just did not land with me at all. You know, there was a lot of modules and it was something that I was like, all right, so mudras, blah, blah, blah. And so it funny. just, I know it is, right? Yeah. So it didn't, I was disinterested. I showed up unenthused. I just went to class because I had to and thought, well, this is just one more thing I have to cross off. And it really stayed in that position in my thoughts for a significant amount of time. I'm going to say, you know, years after I got my certification, I really didn't use mudras at all. But then one day I took out my mudra book and started reading through it and playing with the hand gestures. And I was like, wow, I really, really love mudras i would sit with them and feel how just changing the shape my hand was in changed something about my thoughts it changed something about my breath it just was started to like really let me tap into the sensations in my hands which even as i'm saying those words out loud right here i'm a massage therapist the sensations in my hands like is my livelihood so that Using my hands didn't resonate is still kind of a funny little anomaly to me that what that why that wasn't the class that came in right away. But the learning was the plant, the seed was planted. And sometimes we never know when the water is going to come and that seed is going to come up and there's going to be some beautiful lessons some some beautiful application that arises just because the Thought was given just a little bit of water
1: and a little bit of a nudge. I think that's really interesting about resonance because, you know, we we did the floating thing and the expectation was, oh my God, I'm going to be tripping. I'm going to be, you know, going to other worlds. I'm going to have this very big experience based on whatever story I was telling myself. And when that didn't happen, I was a little disappointed, even though I had a great experience and the things that were real were really exceptional that our resonances are going to be different. So you talked about do, using, feeling the shifts in something in you when you do the different hand gestures. I don't, I don't feel the shift. I academically apply what I know about them to the hand gesture, but I don't know that I actually feel that resonance. But that doesn't mean it's not in resonance. Like the resonance may be so subtle that there's a blockage for me actually Acknowledging it, recognizing it, feeling it, experiencing whatever that is. So it may not mean that it's not actually vibing in me, but I still am trying to get outside my head in order to feel it in my body. So I think that those, when we talk about seeds that are planted, and when we look back, 2020 is, you know, hindsight is 2020. When we look back and are able to apply the language that we've learned, maybe that planting of the seed is. A little resonance beginning to make itself known, you know, without, without us even knowing it, you know, here comes and enter awareness. When awareness comes in, then we're able to maybe access that resonance at a deeper level because we're aware of it. So maybe it, maybe it's the awareness of it. like, this is where I get fucked up because awareness is not my academic mind. It's not the thing that says, "Oh, I'm floating in water, and I'm doing this." And the narrative thing, the awareness, I think, is the thing that allows us to experience that resonance.
0: I was writing when you were talking about how you experienced the resonance, and how the situation came in, and you were saying, "You know, you don't feel the the hand gestures yet." And I was like, "And so I'm thinking, when did I start feeling it?" And it was when I started to explore the peace sign and the fuck you sign. And I'd be like, okay, so hold up a peace sign and close your eyes. So anybody who wants to do that, if you're not driving, just hold your fingers and a peace sign and close your eyes and then turn your hand around, drop a finger and see if something changes. And it's, you know, there, you can, you can't, you know, you, and again, that comes back to that academic understanding of what the two different, what and you're to trying me,
1: to communicate with them. This will always be Treat Williams from hair. Always. Like when I do it, it makes me smile and rest in peace, Treat Williams, who recently passed away. But that will always be that scene for me. So like I. Yeah, I, and I'm not saying it's not there, but I think, though, is that resonance do, is not always acute. It's not always something that we feel that strong experience. Sometimes it's so subtle and I'm working on subtlety. I'm I'm a bull in a fucking china shop. So even in my, own, in my own body sometimes, not always. You know, these practices give us these tools. So even right now, I have the tools enough to know that, you know what, I also don't end up at the mountain in guided meditation. I don't feel the babbling brook. Like I don't see it. I might have an experience. I can, I, I can make it academic. I can tell the story. I can follow the story in my head. But the visual piece that taps into the visceral piece is often elusive for me. Think when I and
0: it may have been in a side evolution that the mudras came back into my awareness. Because it's what bodies teach me when I touch them. Like if anybody listened to more than two episodes of our podcast, they kind of know that I talk about fascia a lot. And when I learned myofascial release in school, I disliked it a lot. I was, it's subtle.
1: All the things you disliked are now like the things that that are like I think about when I think of you. I know, <laughs> isn't that crazy? I don't resistance. Know, resistance. What, why do we resist the things that we at some point are probably going to be our life's nourishment? Yeah, like feeling myofascial release. You have to be quiet. You have
0: to slow down. You have to tap into the subtle in order to feel it. And when I did feel it, it was so subtle that I would just, my mind would say, yeah, that can't be it. That can't be it. And I would dismiss the things that I thought I was palpating as, well, that certainly can't be it. That is, you know, you're just making up that you're even feeling this thing. So I did not like it. And the idea that I became somebody who focuses in fascia in my practice is also one of those things that I have to chuckle at myself with. So. But what happened was, and I think this is the same thing that happened with the mudras, It got into my head. It got into my skin. It got into my hands that I can't do this. And I just couldn't grasp it. And I didn't know why, but somehow I knew it was important for me to feel. So I found my teachers. I went and I found the teacher in my school, Christine Hofelder, thank you who I thought was the best MFR teacher and practitioner. And then I invested in doing an internship with her. And for six months, I worked in her practice as her intern so that I could learn to feel. And that's all I was learning. It's interesting, I had to learn to feel and what a challenge that was. And she just kept saying, Teresa, get out of your head. You cannot do this in your head. It's an embodied sense. You have to be able to feel it and come out of your head and land in your senses, land in the sense of touch. Did she give you directions on how to get out of your head? Uh, Well, (laughs) no, but I, I do have a story about how I actually did it. So I was massaging and really frustrated because I couldn't do it. And The person on the table that I was massaging at the time was helping me to learn this technique. And as I started to massage, I share this story all the time. And I'm getting frustrated. The more frustrated I got, he finally started singing and saying, singing. I want to hear your body talk, your body talk. I want to hear your body talk and I was like, stop, stop. I'm trying to work. I'm trying to work. And I was like so frustrated because the singing kept going on and I just couldn't do it. But finally, it worked because I came out of my head and into the creative part of my being, which is what the music and the song did. It opened up that part of my brain that was more creative and more receptive and didn't want to think it through. So anyway, that's my... uh. Curiosity is the thing that gets me when I don't understand it and don't like it. And I finally, finally, after a long period of time. In divine time. Res- yes. Notice my resistance. That's when I learn.
1: Okay. So this brings us beautifully to the end. And in, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday. See, I still have to use my fingers. In two days, we are going to be, after this drops, that we have an event coming up on Saturday the 15th. So it's just a couple of days after this drops. And it really speaks to diving into the different ways that we learn, the different ways that we take in information and put out information. And that's moving through the koshas, something if you've listened to more than two episodes, you also know that we talk a lot about. So we're doing it, it's gonna be at the Flower of Life Yoga in Marsville, Pennsylvania from 1130 to 330 on Saturday, July 15th. And it's called The Radiant Self, um, Illuminating the Koshas for Inner Transformation. And it's, I think it's going to be epic. So if you're in town and it, you thought, ooh, this sounds a little interesting. I'd like to dive a little deeper with these ladies. Then please, you know, I'll put it in the show notes. You'll, and if you're not on our newsletter, please sign up at anecdotalanatomy.com. You can scroll down on that main page and join our mailing list so that you hear about all these incredible events. We have three awesome summer events. Camp is coming up. And then we have a sisterhood event at the end of August. So mark your calendars and sign up for The Radiant Self because you are and you should know that. Mm
0: -hmm. Yes. And we also have a Facebook page. So come on over there and share your thoughts with us or send us an email at anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com and feedback programs you'd like to see or anything you'd like for us to talk more about. We want to know all your thoughts as much as we share ours with you. We'd like to hear yours also until next time. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening, for reading, reviewing, and subscribing to our channels and other stuff. Thank you for inspiring us to have these conversations and to create contemplative, live experiences that move our bodies, hearts, and minds to the rhythm of our highest selves. Thank you for showing up.
1: Feel free to send us your stories, questions, and comments to anecdotalanatomy at gmail.com. As always, we want to thank our amazing editor, Judith George, Keith Kenny for our fun music, and Cindy Fatsis for our photos. Journey with us as we continue down the roads of discovery, taking the detours and meeting the mysteries. You are our why. See you next time.